Welcome to Outreach Church. Thanks for checking out this week's message. To hear more, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or visit outreachchurch.net for downloads and service information. Not because of our works, not because of our good deeds or our lack of bad deeds, not because we got things right, but because of the sacrifice of Jesus, we can boldly come in to his presence and know that not only are we just tolerated, but we are, we are wanted and desired. And if you don't understand that, if sin consciousness is keeping you from getting alone with him and pursuing him and coming into his presence and experiencing communion with him, that's where we're changed. It, it, teaching can point you to it. Worship is, is an expression of it. But where we're truly changed is when we alone come before him in communion with him, in the intimacy of being with a father and being loved and being known, unveiled, unashamed, standing in his presence and not feeling this, the, the stain of sin and the guilt and the shame and the condemnation. It, 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 listen, the thing that keeps us he says that he's able to present you before the Father as, as holy and blameless and upright and beyond reproach. That means no one could make an accusation against you that would stand. But here's the thing, not even you. And maybe especially you. Because sometimes the most reproach we hear in our lives comes from our own minds. Because we're evaluating ourselves based on our good deeds versus seeing ourselves for who we are as new creations born again in Christ. And yeah, your, filth, your righteousness was filthy rags. That's why he said, come and exchange and buy what you can't afford and receive the robe of righteousness that Jesus shed his blood for you to receive. So that you know, here's the, you know when you stand before him, what you do isn't good enough to stand before a holy God. From the beginning, man knew that they made fig leaves, but they weren't good enough because they knew they made it with their own hands. It was their own doing. It was their own righteousness. And because of that, they hid when they heard the presence of God coming rather than running to him. And God saw that and he said, you know what? I don't want you to feel like you have to stand before me in something that you've made with your hands and based on your works because it'll never do. You'll never dare to come into my presence boldly. So I'll make a covering. I'll shed blood and I'll cover you. And you'll know that the covering that you have was by my hand, not by yours. And it'll give you a confidence to boldly enter into my presence and know that you belong there and that I desire you to be there. We have to understand that because apart from that, we will never actually experience the thing that changes us, which is the loving, intimate presence of our Father, of the Son, Jesus, and of the spirit that dwells in us, will live condemned in our own minds rather than believing that we are who he made us to be. That's why we have to understand that. He made him to be sin so that he could make us to become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. He didn't act a certain way so you could act differently. He didn't act sinful so you could act righteous. He became so that we might become. That's who you are. And when you believe that, there's nothing that can keep you from his presence because there's no accusation that could stand because you understand I'm not here in my own good deeds and my own works and my own righteousness. That, that not taking communion unworthily has scared people into thinking that if I did something wrong, listen, he's not saying if you did 46 and a 45 on your way here, don't take communion. 
It's not examine your own life and make sure that on your own you're good enough to take communion and have fellowship with him. He's saying there's a one way that's unworthy, and that's to take that based on your own good deeds, your own good efforts, your own good works, and qualifying or disqualifying yourself based on what you have or haven't done, that's actual unworthiness. The only way that any of us are worthy to receive is because he made us worthy, and we've received what he died for us to become. That's the body and the blood of Jesus. Thank you for the body, broken. Thank you that you took what we didn't deserve, what we deserve so that we could receive what you are and who you are. I thank you, Jesus, that you, the spotless lamb, became my sin, that I might become your righteousness. Thank you. And he held up a cup and he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. He was saying, The old is passing, the new has come. And what the old covenant did was, by the blood of bulls and goats, it made a covering for sin. But Hebrews tells us that that where there was a covering for sin, there was still a consciousness of sin. And so people lived condemned because they understood the sin hadn't been removed, it was just covered for a time. And next year I'd need it to be covered again, and the next year again. And it was a continual cycle of sin being covered He said, but what he did, he did once for all for them who are sanctified. What the blood of bulls and goats could never do, he did by offering up his life on a cross. That's why when John saw Jesus, he looked and said, behold, the Lamb of God, not who covers the sin of the world, who takes away the sin of the world, removes it as far from you as the east is from the west lost in the sea of forgetfulness. I, the Lord their God, will forgive their sins and remember them no more. It's not simply a covering for your sin. It's the removal of sin. It's the circumcision of the heart for the cutting away of the flesh so that our desires begin to align with his desire so we don't live with internal struggle the rest of our lives, wishing we could be different but not knowing the power to be different, calling on a form of grace to simply cover sin rather than understanding it as the enablement to live the life that we were called to live a new creation in Christ. That's what the blood of Jesus made possible. That's what we celebrate today. God, I thank you for the body and the blood of Jesus that was broken and shed for us. I pray that that not one ounce would be wasted, that not one lash, that not one drop would be wasted but that we would walk in the fullness of everything he offered himself up for us to have. In Jesus' name, I pray that we would get this revelation of righteousness, that we would know who we are and who you've made us to be in Christ, that we would live unveiled, unhidden, unashamed, standing before you, being known and fully known, and knowing you as you can be known. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You know, it's that revelation that changes everything. Anything less than that is modifying behavior, controlling stuff, and trying to do better rather than becoming who he said that you could become. Um, they're going to pass the baskets real quick, and, and uh, we're going to jump into the message because it's, it's a continuation of, of last week's. How many of you were here last week? Where were the rest of you? Ah. Uh, Well, if you weren't here last week, 
I, I would encourage you to find that, that podcast because we started talking about something we're going to continue talking about today. How are you guys doing? Isn't it amazing that we can come together and celebrate the body and blood of Jesus and believe that we really are who he says that we are? That you don't have to live condemned in your mind. You don't have to go around judging your worth based on your ability to do things perfectly or not. That you just continue to surrender to him and he continues to change you and mold you into the image of his son. To where your desires line up with his desires and you're not living in inner turmoil. You're not battling against yourself and trying to do better. You actually believe and you become. And I'm just, oh, I'm thankful for that. That's really the revelation that changes everything. It changes you when you realize that you're no longer who you were, that you died and your life is now hidden in Christ, that you're seated at the right hand of the Father in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that no accusation can be made against you because it would have to make it through the blood of Jesus to find its way to you. It's not happening. Not today. Not tomorrow. Not ever. Um, we started talking last week about this idea of good, and, and, and the, truth of the, the truth of it is, is that when we hear words, when we hear scripture even, we, we have a way of filtering it or an understanding, and a lot of that's based on, on different things, like what we've experienced in life. So, so when I, if, you, if, if you ask me, if I, I love hot stuff. Who loves hot peppers, like really hot stuff, right? Yeah, look at all the godly people raising their hands. <laughs> it's all there for us to use and eat. Some people are like, yeah, well, he gave us poison ivy, but I don't use that to make clothes, <laughs> um, which is true. But, but if, if, if you ask me, like if I'm sitting there eating hot sauce and you ask me, hey, is that hot? And it's like Tabasco, I would say, no, not really. And then you, you, could, you could load it onto your food. And then when you took a bite, look at me and be like, you liar. It's hot, you know, and your eyes are watering and everything. Because you didn't stop to consider that what I call hot might be different than what you call hot. Because you didn't stop to consider the fact that our definitions could be totally different. And that if you didn't actually ask me, well, what do you consider hot? You may have no idea of what I consider hot, and it could be totally different. And here's the point. In life, the things that we accept as good, if we've never stopped and asked God, what is your idea of good in this area of my life? Our idea of good and his idea of good could be worlds apart. And because we've never stopped to consider that what he has for us might be better than what we've experienced, we find ourselves living somewhere that he never called us to live and thinking that's the blessing and the goodness of God when he has so much more available and he's just waiting for us to ask him, God, what do you call good? When, when David said, I would have despaired had I not believed that I would see the goodness of God in the land of the living, he had an idea of what it meant to see God's goodness. And it kept him moving forward rather than staying still in less than what God had for him. So when, the, when, when, when God called the children of Israel out of Egypt, he said to them, I'm taking you into a good land. But he didn't stop there. He described it. He said, a land that flows with milk and honey. A land with, with cities that you didn't build and cisterns that you didn't dig and vineyards that you didn't plant that you'll eat the fruit of. He, he described what good was for them. And here's why. Because if we don't have an idea from him of what his idea of good is, then anything better than what we have is good. So if you're a slave and you're being beaten and you're being tortured and your children are being taken from you and you're forced to spend your life building something that, you, that doesn't benefit you in the least and, and, and you're constantly mistreated and you're living in slavery for 400 years and then God calls you out of Egypt and he swallows Egypt, the, the Egyptian army up behind you and tells you, 
The Egyptians that chase you today, you'll never see them again. In other words, once that water settles back down over them, you are set free from the Egyptians. You will never again be their slaves. And if you don't have an idea of what he calls good, then the first place that you come to that's better than slavery, you're like, oh, this is good. No, it's better, but it's not good. It's better than it was, but he doesn't intend for you to stay there. And how many of you guys know that the first place they came to, one of the very first places they came to when they left Egypt and they were walking in the desert was an oasis. There was a pond there with water. There were date trees with sweet fruit on them that they could eat. How many of you realize that like, it'd be very tempting if you've been living in slavery, if the first place you came to that had water that you could drink and fruit that you could eat, where you were no longer being threatened, it would be very tempting if you didn't know what God called good to assume this is good and start to try to put down roots and try to farm the desert rather than moving forward into the fullness of what he calls good. And so I just started asking this question to myself of what areas of my life am I trying to farm the desert? Like where is where I'm at better than where I was but not what he calls good? And have I ever sought him out? And what made me think of this was I was talking to a couple in pre-marriage counseling and they said, we just want to have a good marriage. And I was thinking, well, well, what is a good marriage? Because if you grew up in a home where the dad was abusive, the mom was an alcoholic to cope with it, and the only time there was peace was when the two of them weren't in the same room, then a marriage without abuse and alcoholism and without fighting constantly, that's good. But that's not what God calls good. The lack of evil is not the fullness of good. And sometimes we'll settle, if we're not careful, for just a lack of evil rather than the fullness of good. The lack of evil is better than evil, but it's not the best that God has for you. What he calls good is better than just no evil. It's actually the presence of promises that he's made to you. And so that's why he defined for the children of Israel, he said to them, I'm bringing you into a good land, but he didn't stop there. He defined for them what good looked like so that in their travel from where they were to where he had for them, they wouldn't be tempted to settle for anything less. And in marriage, he gives us this clear picture, and this message isn't about marriage, but, but if you're okay with just a lack of fighting, a lack of abuse, and that's good, then you'll settle for something that isn't full of what he calls love. Which is, is there gentleness here? Is there kindness? Is there patience and joy? Is there meekness? Is there self-control? Are people laying their lives down for the other, not living at the expense of one another? Are people actually being loved by the Father to the point where they have something to give and they live their lives to overflow rather than to take? Because that's his idea of a good marriage, is where two people are actually filled with the love of God and overflowing that love onto each other and laying their lives down one for the other, not living at the expense of each other and saying, well, we just won't fight. And, and here's the thing, like, there may come a time because there was this transitional time where he brought them from where they were and was bringing them to where he had for them. But if you don't actually settle in your mind that I'm not going to stop until I get to what he calls good, then, then what will happen is, is the first thing that comes along that looks better, you'll be tempted to stay there. And you'll think, this is good. And the problem with that is you'll then teach your children, this is good. And you'll teach the community of people around you, this is good. And you'll set a standard for your life that says, this is good. 
this is what it looks like to have a godly marriage that's blessed. And you'll put down roots and you'll stay in a place that was meant to be a stop along the way to where he had for you. Because he, he did, he called them out of Egypt and he said, there's going to be this short time. It was supposed to be a short time. That's why it talks about Jesus. He said he came to make the crooked path straight. What took 40 years, he came to do in 40 days. Like, don't give yourself excuse. Why would, listen, why would you want to find excuse to stay in the wilderness when there's a promise of a good city waiting? Why would you want to find an excuse? Why would you look for a reason to stay in less than he has for you rather than abandoning anything that isn't his idea of good and pursuing what he's called good? He said the kingdom of God is, is righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. If the fruit of my life isn't righteousness, if I don't experience peace, and if I'm not living in joy, then I'm not living fully in what he calls the kingdom of God. And if any area of my life isn't under the influence of the kingdom of God, and I'm not seeing those things, I'm not to condemn myself for where I'm not, but I'm also not to give myself permission to stay there and call it good because it's better than where I used to be. Because that's the enemy. The enemy would love for you to just take one step away. He'd love for you to set your camp up at the first stop out of Egypt rather than continue on into the fullness of what God has for you. And so we talked about how our experiences sometimes will start to change and define what we call good and how, how a lot of times what we do is we take what God has said and then we drag it over to our experience and we let our experience define his word rather than letting his word define our experience. And an easy one to, to show that in is everyone's experience that I'm sure at some point in their life is healing. Right? So it says that they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. It says if they're sick among you, call for the elders of the church and have them anoint them with oil. And the prayer of faith will heal the sick. And if they have sins, they'll be forgiven. And we have these clear words, like where God doesn't make it gray. He just says real simply, if, then this. And then suddenly we do the if, and the this doesn't happen. And so now we take God's word, we drag it over to our experience, and we say, well, God must not have meant this because we experienced that. And we let our experience define what he's clearly said rather than letting what he clearly said define our experience and realizing that was less than what he's called us into. And it's not for the sake of condemning yourself. It's not for the sake of taking the responsibility of, wow, I must have really messed it up or I must have really missed it. But it is saying, I'm not going to settle there I'm going to continue to pursue him because I know that he's promised that there's more that I could see. That's the goal of our life is to not settle anywhere that's a wilderness, even if it's a better wilderness than the prison that we were in before, but to say, I'm going to continue to pursue you because I see what you say in your word and I'm not going to stop and I'm not going to stop pursuing you until I see the fullness of what you've promised. I'm not going to beat myself up and condemn myself for the fact that they didn't get healed, but I'm also not going to stop believing that you want to heal and stop laying my hands on the sick and expecting them to recover. Otherwise, our experience is now defining what his word says rather than letting his word define our experience. And, and so we talked about that. And the other, one of the other things, and I'm only going to get to one. There's, there's two more I wanted to talk about. What was going to be one message became two, and now it's three, and there's still going to be four. Um, but, but these things are a big deal. Um, and they're on his heart for us. And so um, the, one of the things that I've seen that's made the, a huge difference in my life is what I accept and what I believe even and what, what I call good and, and wh what the standard that I allow myself to live in is the culture or the community that I'm involved with. It's the people that I surround myself with on a regular basis that both I speak into their lives and they speak into my life. And, and Paul was writing about this and he, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you have your Bibles, open them up to that real quick, and we're going we're gonna to talk out of this, these two verses for a little while today. And this stuff is important for us to understand because your life doesn't exist in a vacuum. 
Like you're constantly portraying to people what it is to follow Jesus and what it looks like to follow Christ. We owe it to the world to be a genuine expression of Christ. We owe it to the world. That's what taking his name in vain is talking about. It's not just not saying, oh my G-O-D. It's not, just not, it's not just not adding a curse word to the end of his name, like a last name. It's, it's actually taking the name of Christ, of Christian, which is little Christ, little anointed one, and now not living anything like the Christ, the anointed one lived. And that's not like, like that's not heretical teaching. It, it, actually, Jesus said this. He said, as the Father sends me into the world, so also do I send you. And at one point, he looked at the disciples and he said, how could you ask me to show you the Father? If you've seen me, You've seen the Father. So the same man that said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, said, I'm sending you into the world the same way the Father sent me. What's he saying? I want you to go and show the world what the Father is like by the way that you live and the way that you love. Why? Because we owe the world to be a genuine expression of the Christ that we surrendered our lives to because he's now Lord. He's now Master. And so I don't, I don't know why I brought that up, but I do want to say this. Like, our lives matter. Like, your life matters. It's not simply get born again, say a prayer, and then hang on till death. He told Nicodemus, he said, he said, Nicodemus, unless a man be born again, he can't even see the kingdom. And not talking about just one day when you die. He's talking about the kingdom of God, which is, love, which is joy and peace and righteousness in the Holy Spirit. He's saying love, joy, and peace and righteousness in the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, listen, you can't even see those things unless you be born again. You, know, you can't even see what God has available for you. Mine hasn't seen nor ear heard the things that God has in store for those that love him. But he has made these things known to us, how? Through his spirit. So in other words, he's saying like there's things that God has for you that you can't even see unless you're born again. Why? Because if you're not born again and filled with his spirit, then you'll keep identifying yourself with who you were rather than who he says you are. And you'll be at enmity with yourself because you'll know the thing you should do, but you won't do it because the power to change hasn't come. Because grace is not simply just something that covers your sin. It's actually the empowerment of God to live the life he called you to live. It has to be because Jesus was a man full of truth and full of grace, yet he never sinned. So grace must be so much more than simply just forgiveness of sin when I miss it. It must be the empowerment of God that dwells inside of me and actually empowers me to live the way he's called me to live. Otherwise, Jesus had no need for grace until he became sin on the cross. And so... So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33 says this, Do not be deceived. Whenever you see, do not be deceived in the Bible, whether it's Jesus saying it or Paul writing or Peter, whoever it is that's writing it, realize this, there's deception in this area. And people have fallen into deception, or he wouldn't say, don't be deceived. So he's saying, listen, here's a deception I don't want you to fall into. Do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. Like, this is the apostle of grace. And he looks out at people and says, stop sinning. And we'll preach that, well, you know, we don't just tell people to stop sinning because we don't focus on sin. Listen, we don't focus on sin. We focus on Jesus. But the truth of the matter is that we should have relationship with people enough that if we're living less than God's called us to or walking in sin, they actually love us enough to look at us and say, hey, stop sinning. That doesn't make you legalistic. It means you love them enough to, to, to actually warn them that what they're doing is going to bring a wage into their life that the Bible calls death. And you care too much about them to see them living less than God called them to live. And so he's looking at these people. This is the apostle of grace. Write him the email. This is Paul. 
It's not my theology. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, listen, he's writing them. He says, don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And, and here's the deal. If you read that in the original language, that word for company there is homilia, which means companionship, intercourse, and communication. Paul's not saying you can't have any kind of dealings or relationship with people that walk in darkness. He's saying don't have intercourse with it. Don't have companionship with it. Don't let it be something that there's an exchange with. It's okay to, you know, there's people that, it's okay to love people and to reach out to people where they are and to know people. And, but here's what Paul's saying. He's saying, listen, there's a difference in the people that you're ministering to and that you're trying to share the love of God with so that they would become born again and know the Jesus that you know and see their life radically transformed. There's a difference in those people and the community of people that you surround yourself with that you actually have communication and companionship and intercourse with. That you actually have this exchange where, where, where you deposit into them and they deposit into you. Paul says if you're doing that in a place where, the, where it's bad, where it just, which would be not born again, not following Jesus, lacking love, all those words. He says if that's the kind of companionship, if that's the kind of communication, if that's the kind of exchange and intercourse you have going on in your life, it will change you and corrupt you. Don't be deceived. Like, don't deceive yourself. And Like, your feet were taken from the clay and set on the rock. Why would you want to go and dabble your feet back into the clay once he took you out of there and placed you on the rock? It's okay to go back to the clay, but for the purpose of getting the next person out of the clay, not for jumping in the clay and enjoying it with them a little bit in the name of, well, I'm trying to evangelize. Listen, if you're not trying to influence them for the kingdom of heaven and you're just enjoying their company, Paul says that will corrupt you. It doesn't mean you can't, but Jesus said, what fellowship does light have with darkness? There's a difference in knowing that there's a lost, dying world that needs to know Jesus and needs the kingdom of heaven, which you carry inside of you, and going out into the world and bringing the message of the gospel of the kingdom into this world and living in companionship, communication, and intercourse with people who have turned their back on and are living oblivious to God and living in evil. There's a difference between the two. And Paul says, don't be deceived. Don't be deceived. And so, I, I, sometimes people would say, and we talked about this a little bit, I'm telling you, this thing is big on God's heart right now. Of, of people would say, well, you know, I, I don't actually talk to people about Jesus. I just let my life speak, and I just I let my life witness to them. And you know what the truth of that is? Is that sounds good, but most of the time that's a cop-out because what you're saying without even realizing it, I found a better way to live than Jesus because although he had to use words to preach the gospel, I, my life alone, can preach the gospel. Don't look at me with that tone. Now listen, I'm serious. A lot of times it's a cop-out. It's a fear of man thing. It's a, it's a thing where it's like, I, I, I kind of want to be around them because I enjoy their company. And you know, if I just don't do sometimes the things that they're doing, like that will speak loudly enough. Like they'll notice that you're not doing what they're doing, but if you don't tell them the reason why, they might not have any idea. Like if you're not getting drunk with people used to get drunk with, they might be like, maybe she's pregnant. It's like, no, yeah, I'm pregnant. It's the spirit of God that's inside of me. And that's the reason why I can't do the things I used to do. But I'm serious, like, don't fall into that trap of, say, of thinking that, like, you have found a way to live that's superior to the way that Jesus lived because his life preached, but so did his mouth, yeah. in word and in deed. And I, I get it. I think sometimes it's a reaction 
to the fact that for a long time there was hypocrisy and there was people that were good at preaching, but they weren't actually living. And so the backlash to that was people putting all the emphasis on the way you live and not preaching with your mouth, but preaching with your life. And the truth is Jesus is in the middle going, hey, I want both. I want your words and I want your deeds. I want you to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom so that I have something to confirm with signs and wonders. Quit asking me for signs and wonders and not preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Because if you look throughout the word, you see, and these signs follow them. And he told them to go about and do this and preach the gospel of the kingdom and then lay hands on the sick and this and that. And God was confirming the preaching of the word with signs and wonders and miracles. And he said, they said, God, stretch forth your hand to heal. Give us all boldness that we might proclaim your gospel and stretch forth your hand to heal. God is healing and he's working and he's performing wonders and signs and miracles to confirm the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom. So if we want to see more of that, we probably should do more of this so he has something to confirm and something to breathe on and something to put his stamp of approval on. Otherwise, it just becomes a show and it draws attention to ourselves. And then it becomes the thing we're pursuing rather than people being the thing we're pursuing and signs and wonders being a tool that he uses to pursue them. All right, I'm off that. I'm going to keep preaching it because I'm telling you, it's, it's, it's on me right now. It, and I feel it so strong that God is saying, like, would, would you open your mouth and actually speak the things you believe in your heart? It's not a lack of you knowing what to say. It's a lack of us actually either loving enough to say or having gotten over the fear of man enough for us to open our mouths and preach. I'm telling you, if Jesus needed to open his mouth to preach the gospel, so do you. And he says this. He warns the church, become sober-minded and stop sinning. And look, look what he says. He says, become sober-minded as you ought and stop sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I speak this to your shame. Like, it's cool to read the parts of the scripture that we love and that encourage us and that, you know, feel good every time you read it. Like, I know the plans I have for you. <laughs> I feel so good to hear that all the time. And listen, there's daily encourage each other, right? But what about the parts of the Bible that make us feel a little bit uncomfortable where he's calling out a church and saying, listen, be sober-minded and stop sinning. And then he says this, for there's some, some of you have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. What's he saying? He's saying it's shameful that you have people in your fellowship in your, that have relationship with you that don't know God. Why? They know you. If they know you, they ought to know the Father. Like, if they know your favorite place to eat, they should know who saved your life and redeemed you from the pit. If they know what kind of car you're saving for, they should know the one who saved you from the miry clay and put your feet on the rock. Like, if they know things about you, the first thing they should know is that you belong to Jesus. And that there's a father who longs to know them, who sent his son to die on the cross. And this is what Paul's saying. He actually says, be sober-minded and stop sinning. Because he's saying, when you stop living the way you're called to live, and you actually dabble in the things that you, were, you came out of, because you're being with people who are not living their lives pursuing the Lord, and you're making that your community and your place of companionship and your place of intercourse where there's an exchange going on, and you live that way, you fall into sin. And then people that know you don't know God, and that's shameful.
then there's the other side of the coin. There's the side of the coin where when it's right, what it does for us. When we are surrounded by people that are pursuing Jesus. When we are surrounded by people who love us and know us and believe in us and see no man according to the flesh but according to the spirit and will actually love us enough to call us up from where we are when we're living less than God's called us to live. Like those are the kind of relationships that we need where we're pursuing Jesus together and where there's intercourse is an exchange of the spirit of God in me and the spirit of God in you and we call each other into higher places and we challenge and we encourage and we stretch and we grow each other and we walk hand in hand and we link arms together and I pray for you and you pray for me and, and suddenly in the middle of the day you come on my heart and I just call you up and say, man, listen, I don't know why but you came into my mind just now and I really felt like I needed to call you. How are you doing? And Oh, you know, and, and there's this exchange and there's this prayer and, and we love each other and encourage each other and we stretch each other. And where, where you believe something and you have a revelation of something because of what you've experienced that propels you into faith that I don't have because I haven't experienced that same thing, but I can get it from you because I actually can listen to you and learn from you and we encourage each other and we sharpen each other. And it's not one holy man up on a hill hoping everybody gets up to where he is. It's a bunch of people who are pursuing the man Jesus together and saying, let's go, let's go, let's go. I remember the one time I, I met a, um, a man, um, his name was Carl, and we became, we instantly became really good friends, and we started to work out together every morning, and, and, and he challenged me because he had a faith in an area where I didn't that just blew me away. Like, he would look at something, and then he would say something, and, just, and, and, and I remember I would talk to him, and I had all these reasons why something couldn't. He had one reason that it could, and he was way more confident with his one reason than I was with all 30 of mine. Like literally, I would have 30 reasons why it couldn't. He'd have one reason that it couldn't. He'd have way more confidence than I did. And I, would, I was challenged. And I'm like, man, I, I, I want to believe like that. And we would talk and he would just share with me. And I, I remember uh, a, a, one way it manifested in the, in the natural, like in the physical, was me and Patty always had this dream to have a pool in our backyard. And, uh, and I would, I'd talk to him about it many times because they had a pool. And I was like, yeah, man, we'd love to have a pool someday. And it's kind of a goal of ours. We want to make our place, a house a place where kids will come and want to be. And, and so one day I was talking to him. He's like, well, why don't you? And I was like, uh, well, part of it is because our backyard. He's like, well, what's wrong with your backyard? And we walked back there. And it sloped 11 feet from one point to another. And I said, well, I mean, it's 11 feet from that point to the low point down there. And he goes, so why is that a problem? And I'm thinking like, uh, <laughs> Because 11 feet of slope, <laughs> and it's not just flat, and you can't just plop a, a pool and have it sloped, you know? <laughs> you need a 12-foot pool to have one foot of water on one end, you know? Like, it doesn't work like that. And, I, and, and, and here's the thing, as he looked at me, he's like, so why don't you just do retaining walls? And he started walking around with spray paint, he starts spraying out on the ground. He's like, hey, why, you got 11 feet of fall, why wouldn't you just drop it five feet here and put a five-foot retaining wall, and then put a five-foot retaining wall on that side, take this dirt, put it over there, and build it up five feet, and then you'd have 10 feet, that, uh, um, then you'd only have one foot of slope from front to back, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess, why not, why wouldn't you, right? And it's just, he saw something that I didn't see. And we need people in our lives like that, that when we have a problem, when we're facing an issue, they see something we don't, and they encourage us with, listen, here's the answer. Not join you in your, oh, man, yeah, you're right, 11 feet of slope, oh, gosh, if I'd have known that, I never would have suggested you do it. Like, we don't need more people to add more problems. We need people that love us enough and that see things that we don't see that will look at us and say, so why is that a problem? Well, you don't understand. My marriage has been this way for 25 years. Why does it have to be that way for 25 more? 
Well, you don't understand. This is the way I grew up. What does that have to do with who you are in Christ? Well, you don't understand because I didn't have this. What does that matter now that you have him? Like we need this kind of fellowship with each other where every time we have an excuse and we got 30 excuses, we have one answer that we're convinced of and it's Jesus. And this is what it says. It says, let no unwholesome word come from your mouth except that which is good for edification in the moment that it might bring grace to the listener. When you have a faith and a belief, when you speak, there's a grace that is imparted to other people. That's not there when you're just stating a general fact. Well, why don't you do it? Doesn't hold the same weight as someone looking at you and saying, you can do that, and actually believing it. We need to be a community of people. I'm telling you, this as, as a church, but, but even with your relationships inside and outside of church, make sure that your community of people are people that speak truth into your life, that won't let you settle for less than what God calls good, that will walk up to you when you're starting to dig ditches in the wilderness next to a pond and some date trees and say, hey, why are you trying to live here? Oh, uh, well, you know, I mean, this is better than where I was. Yeah, it's better than where you were, but it's not what he calls good. He's got something better for you. Why don't, let's go. Hey, let's, yeah. let's, let's put down the shovel. He promised that there would be cisterns that you, that you could drink from that you didn't dig and vineyards that you can eat from that you didn't plant. And it looks like you're planning to do a lot of digging and planting. That looks like a lot of work. Why wouldn't you just get over here and keep going after him and pursuing him for his best? Amen. And don't settle until you're there. Until, don't settle until you have what he's promised. If he said... That, that he came to bring life and life abundant. If there's an area of my life that's not living in abundance, what he calls abundance, then I probably shouldn't settle for living there just because it's more abundant than the place of lack that I used to live in. Yeah. So, Father, would you just, just tear apart and destroy our humanistic way of thinking that defines good by anything other than you? Jesus, when they came to you and they said, good teacher, you looked at him and you said, why do you call me good? There's one who's good. What was he saying? He's saying you can't know good unless you know the one who is good. Your idea of good doesn't matter. You have to know the one who is good. Then you can actually determine what's good and what's not. Why do you call me good when you don't even know the one who's good? Who told you it was good? Who told you? Where did your idea of good come from? Did it come from past experience? Did it come from hurt teaching you what bad was? So anything that doesn't hurt is better than bad. It must be good. Did it teach you that abuse was bad? So anything that's not abusive is good. Did it teach you that, that lack and poverty wasn't his will? So anything that doesn't look like extreme lack and extreme poverty must be abundance. Did it look like a lack of peace and fighting and chaos? was bad, so anything that doesn't have chaos must be good? Or have we ever actually pressed into him and asked him, God, what do you call good? What does a good marriage look like to you, Lord? What do good friendships look like to you, God? What does prosperity look like to you, Father? What does living in the blessing of Abraham look like to you, God? Don't let me farm the desert when there's a good land waiting. Let me pass through. Learn what I need to learn so that when I enter into the good, I'm prepared to live there and dwell there all the days of my life and never be moved. Father, would you make us a people that love each other more than we love our own lives? That we would be willing to look foolish, to be rejected, to see other people come to know you. 
God, would you make us people who are not okay living in intercourse and in direct companionship with bad company? God, that, that we would have a relationship with people, but that it would be you flowing out of us towards them, not what's in them flowing into us. Because greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. Why would we trade the greater for the lesser? Why would we willingly give ourselves to things that we know you died for us to be free from? Father, would you continue to call us into what you call good in every area of our lives? In Jesus' name, amen. Listen, I, before we go, I just want to say this. Is there anybody here who's never actually accepted what we talked about during, during communion, it, the, the sacrifice of Jesus and the offer of the forgiveness of sins and for him to be the Lord and Savior of your lives. Is there anyone here who's never done that? Because you can do that today. Like you can step out of one kingdom and into the other right now. Like everything can change in this moment. Is there anyone here who needs to do that? You just need to surrender your life to King Jesus so that, for, yeah. Is there anybody else that, while, while we do this like wants to surrender their lives? So here's what we're going to do. Everybody just stand up real quickly. If you raised your hand, and if you didn't raise your hand and you need to do it, would you just come up to the front? We want to pray with you. We're going to have some people to talk through with you what the decision that you're making. We don't want anyone to be unaware. We want you to know what you're saying yes to and who you're giving your life to and what that looks like. So Father, would you just bless every person with an intimate knowledge of you, God? Let not one person walk around in a fog not knowing who you are and who you've called them to be, but knowing you as Father Jesus, that they would know you as Lord and Savior, Spirit, that they would know you as the leader and the guider into all truth and the power of God that lives within them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>